Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com laser. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of September 28th, 2020, and the 2020 regular season is over. Typically, in our seven seasons podcasting about the Chicago White Sox, it means no more White Sox baseball. But not this year. The Chicago White Sox finished 35-25 and 25 in the 60-game 2020 season. And even though that's a top-five record in the American League, thanks to tiebreakers, the Chicago White Sox are the seventh seed, and they will be facing the o- Oakland Athletics in the wildcard round. On this episode, we'll recap the final series against the Chicago Cubs and the White Sox regular season, which did not end on a good note. And it's our mega P.O. Sox mailbag episode, which we will answer as many fan questions as possible at the end of the show. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The Chicago White Sox finished 35-25 and 25 in 2020, and they are making the postseason. If I told you that before the regular season, I think we'd be very happy with that result. But after the team finished 2-8 and eight in their last 10 games, how are you feeling about this squad? I'm feeling slightly disappointed just because, you know, it reminded us of so many other seasons where they just needed to avoid getting swept or just needed to win one of three. You just, all these, uh, 
you know, cases where they just need to win a series later um, in order to avoid like the worst case scenario and they couldn't do it. You know, they, they got swept, especially in, in uh, Cleveland. That sweep was really just devastating to tiebreaker scenarios and uh, the standings and, and just, yeah, it, it, it posed a lot of problems for just the way the White Sox stand against teams with the good left-handed hitters and good right-handed pitchers. But by and large, overall, I think it's a positive season, and I also think that when you look at the way the um, you know the way the bullpen was saved and the way the rotation was preserved for the postseason, I, I think Rick Renteria and Joe McEwing and and Don Cooper have basically lined up everybody. You know, every arm they need for October is ready to go, and I think that's basically given the shape of the season and how little home field advantage seems to matter. I think that's really the most important thing, and I think they've at least taken care of that. The White Sox lost two out of three against the Chicago Cubs, ending the season series with a split. And for those that care, the BP Crosstown Cup will remain with the Chicago Cubs uh, because a tiebreaker. So if the team that possesses the trophy either wins the season series outright or ties uh, in the four or six game interleague schedule uh, they get to keep the cup so the White Sox don't win the cup the Cubs still have the cup I'm sorry if you care about the cup but a lot in this series was made about Wilson Contreras in the first game bat flipping and Jimmy Cordero hitting him with a pitch Major League Baseball believed Cordero did it on purpose so they suspended him for three games well Cordero is challenging that suspension and if he loses that appeal uh, Cordero could be suspended for the start of the 2021 regular season. So even though he has a three-game suspension, it's for the regular season and not for the postseason. Again, that's what a lot of people are taking away from this series between the White Sox and the Cubs is Contreras' bat flip. However, Jim, for me, the big takeaway for this for this series for the White Sox was a last chance for Dylan Cease, Dane Dunning, and Ronaldo Lopez to stake a claim to be the White Sox number three starter in the postseason. And quite frankly, all three failed trying to make their case. Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway is the hopefully the White Sox hitting the bottom in the first game. You know, I know they lost last game too and you know Lopez got blown out, but just the first game with Cordero dr- drilling Contreras with Rick Renteria getting tossed for the third time in five games and and you know they they've been fighting Angel Hernandez's crew for three series out of four and that crew really is terrible. Um and I can imagine some frustration boiling over from one series to another, but just seeing the lack of composure and just becoming unraveled and just embarrassing themselves, uh, you know, whether it's um, just with the with the you know, the backlash and with the um, you know just the vigilante justice, you know, and I don't know about you, I think I believe Renteria when he said that he didn't want Cordero to hit him. I don't believe Cordero. I don't think it was ordered. I think it was just something Cordero took in his own hands. I'm not sure about you, uh, but that's kind of my read on it. I can see why, you know, when Yolmer Sanchez pitched tonight, I can see that uh, he really didn't want to dip into his good relievers to get through that game and just happened to do, you know, happened to have to after Cordero did his thing. But it seemed like it was on purpose to me. Um, but the last two games, they, they conducted themselves in a more professional manner. When they had to win a game, they used the relievers to do so. Um, when the game seemed out of reach, they went back to the front end of their bullpen and relievers who won't be used. So it seemed like they had a good 
uh, I guess, idea of priorities and level heads and hitting pitchers they should hit in the last two games, and that was nice to see. So that was my biggest takeaway. But when it comes to the starting pitchers, yeah, I, I think right now the way I see it is that going into the last game, I think it's pretty much a crapshoot. You see who, uh, uh, you know, whether it's better off starting a lefty or a righty and then going from there because uh, right now just there's really, you know, Dunning looks like he might be having a bit of a, you know, first wobble, either a dead arm period or just getting solved, being more nervous around the strike zone, having problems commanding, you know, more than one pitch at a time. Cease is cease and Lopez is Lopez. That's how I read it. Yeah. And you know, what's unfortunate is that Lopez looked really good that first inning. He got the, he got a couple strikeouts. He was hitting where Grandel wanted him to hit as far as the spots in the zone. And I thought, ooh, this has got a good opportunity here for Ronaldo Lopez. And then the second inning happened, and he gives up that home run, and then he just completely falls apart, uh, which is unfortunate. And, uh, yeah, if he doesn't fall apart with the White Sox scoring eight runs against the Cubs' bullpen, uh, maybe the White Sox would have, you know, came from behind and won that last game, and they would have been the number four seed uh, hosting the first round against the New York Yankees instead of having to to travel to Oakland. But, you know, there's been so much made about what are the White Sox going to do in game three as far as a starting pitching situation. My perspective is this. If the White Sox don't win games one and two, I don't think they're going to win the wild card round regardless. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, they're going to have to go all in for these first two games against Oakland if you want them to go to the divisional series. So let's push this issue another week down the road uh, for the White Sox uh, because I don't think any of us are going to like the answer on how they're going to address game three or get through game three. Uh, as far as at a pitching front, to be able to win that game and win the series and move on to the divisional series. Uh, and we'll, you know, with Dane Dunning and Dylan Cease and Ronaldo Lopez, we'll see what happens as far as in the offseason. We're going to have the Sox Machine offseason plan project. I'm sure some people have thoughts about moving one or two of these three to patch up as far as the White Sox starting rotation. Uh, I am still a big believer in Dane Dunning. But, you know, with Dylan Cease and Ronaldo Lopez, I think quickly they are becoming the same or they're in the same group that there's a there's stuff there. There's aspects of their pitching arsenal that you watch on film and think, you know what? This guy's got a lot of potential, but they just cannot consistently meet that level of production that you expect from that type of potential. And it just makes you wonder is this guy a starting pitcher for real or is their long-term future coming out of the bullpen just because they can't put everything together for five plus innings? Um, that's kind of where my head is at, but you know, in the postseason, to be Frank, uh, especially with Gio Gonzalez appearing to be hurt, Jim, uh, in game three, uh, having to be removed from that game, uh, the, the regular season finale, that if the white Sox had to go to Cesar Lopez for one to two innings, I think they would be able to hold their own. But asking them to go more than that, I think, is an incredibly risky endeavor. Yeah, I think it's a one-time through proposition when it comes to Game 3. And I think part of it will be, you know, whether there is a Game 3. You know, that can be a moot point one way or another. Uh, and, and they might not even have to address it. But 
when it comes to the um, the shape of the staff, I think it makes sense to have a game time decision, and partially because it's drawn from weaknesses, the White Sox not having a clear cut third starter, but also just based on who they needed to use in the first two and whether they can do a true bullpen game, like maybe they can do, um, yeah, like two innings of Matt Foster and two innings of Cody Hoyer and two innings of Garrett Crochet and, and have that work out well. But if one of them or multiple of, of them were needed for two innings a day before, that might be pushing it, even though it's all hands on deck. You know, just might not be a smart move to use. Like Garrett Crochet has never pitched you know, more than two innings in a game uh, and has only pitched once in consecutive days using him for consecutive days for multiple innings. I'm not sure if that makes sense. It's going to be a feel thing. And, you know, that's always tricky because it's very easy to second guess when that happens. But just based on the nature of the staff and, and right now, I think probably Dunning is still my number one pick for the third starter just because he um, you know, gets ground balls. The way he fails, I think, is less spectacular than the way Cease fails and the way Lopez fails. And I, I think that's the way I'm leaning towards it is if you're looking just for one guy who won't you know, get buried under a four or five spot uh, in an inning, he'd be my guy. But just, yeah, and I'm looking at the A splits too. And righty-lefty doesn't really seem to matter. They're kind of equally unimpressive against both. So that's, I guess, good in a way that you don't really have to worry about, you know, not having the handedness right. But yeah, it, it's just going to be unsatisfying, I think. But hopefully, you know, ideally they win two games and don't worry about game three and they can kick the can down the road. But if they have to get to game three, I think it's just going to ba- be based on the bodies right. available. And uh, again, I'm with you. Hopefully the White Sox don't have to play game three in a good way that they win the first two games and they move on to the next round. Um, but one other thing from this weekend, one positive is that Luis Robert is starting to get back on track offensively, Jim. He had a three-hit game on Sunday to end the season, and thanks to that three-hit game, he was able to finish the season with a 101 weighted runs created plus, meaning that Robert finished as a league average offensive player. He had dipped below that 100 line uh, with his poor performance in September. But Jim, this offense really needs another bat to step up, especially with Aloy Jimenez's injury status up in the air. Do you think Robert turned a corner this past weekend? Are you getting a little bit more confident that he can be the type of hitter that we saw for most of August? I guess not to that level, but yeah, the swings were better. The swing choices were better. I think those are the two things. One is that you know you got into a habit of just chasing every single slider away, but taking a lot of fastballs, being too concerned about off-speed pitches and just getting um, into bad counts or getting you know backed up against the wall because of just weird pitch selection. He seems to got, have gotten past that. And also the swings seem more fluid, more, uh, more aggressive, more just confident in what he's doing. I think before when he was getting in the huge strikeout clumps, it seemed like he was just afraid of missing, uh, which doesn't really help. I think you just got to swing how you swing and whatever happens, happens. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a joint effort. It's going to be a team effort to fill in for Jimenez if he's not able to get back. I think part of it is Robert looking not like an empty spot. I think part of it's Moncada being a bit more energized and having a little bit more to offer. And then hopefully the other part is patching in that DH spot. Hopefully, you know, my, my guess is that uh, the White Sox use both catchers. I think that's always made the most sense. Maybe it's not a solution you want for uh, weeks and weeks and weeks just because of an injury exposing two guys for one time trying to rest them accordingly probably just want one catcher on the bench at all times but given the stakes and given how just 
Encarnacion has shown nothing against pitchers with average or better velocity that, yeah, I think you have to go all out and have both catchers in the lineup, especially if Jimenez is out and Angle and Mazzara have to play. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that Aloy Jimenez can play. And I know that Rick Renteria's comments over the weekend when asked about Emre Encarnacion that he still believes that Encarnacion can provide a positive impact to the White Sox lineup because he's been in the postseason. He's had big moments in the postseason in his career. But if Jimenez can hit and he could run the bases, if it's not a good idea for him trying to run in that vast outfield at, at the Oakland Coliseum, if he can at least be DH, I have to imagine, Jim, that you got to go with Aloy Jimenez as the DH and not Edwin Encarnacion, right? Yeah, I'm hoping Encarnacion is just important to have in the dugout watching pitchers. Uh, maybe, you know, I can see him getting in a bat if you need a homer late in the game and if they're facing like more of a lefty or, um, you know, a changeup oriented pitcher that maybe he can still catch up with that. But, you know, when you bet 158, when you when you bet below the done line for an average over the course of a season, I think you you, you have to see the writing on the wall, right? I Yeah. I mean, I wrote in early September that he's not hitting breaking pitches and he's not hitting anything faster than 93 miles per hour. And at the end of September nothing's changed. <laughs> so yep. I, this is not just a concern for 2020 for Edwin Carnacion. I have a concern for him for 2021 because I don't know which team is going to sign him. And depending on what he wants to play for, as far as the amount of money, I don't think any team is going to give him $12 million like the White Sox did this season. Yeah. And, and I'm looking at his postseason record too. And he did have some good series with Toronto, but yeah, the, uh, he became a fan unfavorite of the Yankees fans after going uh, one for 18 with 11 strikeouts and 22 plate appearances against uh, Houston in the ALCS last right. year. So, uh, and, and those were the signs, I think, being shown just the inability to match velocity, uh, get up to high fastballs and sliders. So, yeah, it, it seems like that would be the lesson to learn is to watch what he did there, watch what he's been doing all season and say not to make the same mistake that the Yankees did in having him such a prominent part of the lineup, even though, yeah, with, I think the problem with Encarnacion last year is he had a good ALDS. He was fine against the twins. I think every Yankee is fine against the twins, <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, he didn't do anything to play himself out of that position, but then just when it came to facing the Astros, just, he did not show up. And with the White Sox, they have the ability to see that he hasn't really shown up all year. He's had some good swings, but it's against a, a specific kind of pitcher. And if they don't face that kind of pitcher, it really doesn't make sense to have him. I mean, I mean, it's, I understand like a small sample just because his bets, you know, when it comes to pitches swung at versus pitches not swung at, they're good at bats. Like it's not a, it's not a matter of a strike zone judgment or, um, you know, just getting himself into, into funks based on his own decision-making. It's just being able to get bat to ball is just not there anymore. And, you know, maybe it's a product of, you know, not having a full, preseason or maybe it's a product of a guy his age just only having a second half of a season uh could be either way but right now i just think you have to take a look at what he's done all season and say you know enough i have confidence in him to be able to work account gym and get it full and maybe force that pitcher to make a tough toughish pitch on a full count and that if the pitcher does not execute he'll draw his walk i have confidence that a could do that 
But now you're in the postseason. You're facing better pitchers. Sure, he'll work a full count. He'll fall off a lot of pitches. But if they put it up in the zone, he's striking out. I'm sorry. Or he's hitting an infield pot fly. He's not going to be able to do a lot of damage. Where, yeah. again, if if Jimenez can't play in the outfield, but he can DH, I just think it's a no-brainer. You got to have Jimenez in that lineup. Yeah, I was thinking about those uh, you know fly balls you mentioned and pop-ups. And that's the difference between Encarnacion and Mazzara is that you know, neither of them are making great contact, but Mazzara makes a wider variety of bad contact. <laughs> like sometimes he hits a, a squibber through the vacated side or he has an inside-out swing. He's able to get the ball down the left field line. Uh, not a whole lot of hits to right field, like not a whole lot of hits to his power field, but between grounders and line drives, whether they're soft line drives or not, they're, they're able to find some grass. So he's got a, a few different swings that allow him to do some damage or maybe, I mean, maybe damage is the wrong word, but contribute you know help find open grass hit them where they ain't but you know Encarnacion basically has one swing and right now that one swing basically hits fly balls and you know that's when Steve Stone over the uh over the weekend I think it was Saturday's game had the the strong wins and he said all Encarnacion needs to do is hit a fly ball and it'll be in good shape and he hits a fly ball it's like a 250 footer to left (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just like, nope. He just hits a lot of just routine fly balls. And those are just the, when it comes to batting average on balls in play, that, you know, pop-ups and fly balls without a whole lot of exit velocity um, just don't produce a whole lot of hits. Whereas Mazzara's a, a, a wide array of shanks do that job. So, you know, when when given the choice between the two of them, I'd pick Mazzara probably 9 out of 10 lineups just because he does create weirder contact that's harder to game plan around. Whereas Encarnacion, I think, is very easy to game plan around. That's a big yikes. Yeah. I mean, because <laughs> Mazzaro's not good. No, he's not good. But I It's think not a compliment a, to Mazzaro. Right. You make a valid point, And that's why it's a big yikes as the White Sox go into the postseason. We are going to talk more about the White Sox first round opponent, the Oakland Athletics, and make our 2020 postseason gut predictions. And I'd like you guys to make your predictions as well. So if you got a piece of paper handy or if you want to type it into a notepad on your smartphone, uh, it's time to make our postseason predictions, fill out our brackets, and see who will make it to the World Series in 2020 next on the Sox Machine Podcast after a quick word from our sponsors. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries. For nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. The Chicago White Sox will be playing in their first postseason game since 2008 on Tuesday, September 29th. And that game is going to be at 2 p.m. Central Time. That is both games 1 and 2 in the afternoon at 2 p.m. Central Time. So that's good news because typically when the White Sox play in Oakland, those games are at 9 p.m. Central Time. And uh, for some of our 
older folks, it's tough to stay up, but I don't think that would be a problem for any type of postseason game as the White Sox travel out west to face the Oakland Athletics, who won the American League West with a 36-24 record. If you look at a bracket, anytime you see a two-seed versus seven-seed, one always thinks that, well, the two-seed must be the much stronger team. But even though Oakland is that number two seed, this is a pretty even matchup against the White Sox as the seventh seed. So, Jim, how do you feel about the Oakland Athletics being the White Sox first postseason opponent? I feel okay about it just because they, um, you know, I think they're relatively even in terms of the composition of their offenses being somewhat homer driven, being somewhat unimpressive right now and also you know having deep bullpens and and pitching staffs that i think are are greater than their parts like uh oakland basically has the best bullpen in the game and not a whole lot of name brand pitchers and uh their rotation is pretty deep i I think that's where their strength is so hopefully the the lack of like a a true frontline guy might be something that helps the white Sox a little bit also a couple lefties but um you know that's also the kind of uh yeah, it can, it can go both ways. I think Oakland's been disappointing in previous postseasons because they're a little bit too deep, but they don't have the stars that can take charge of a game against other teams' best players. So maybe they just don't have the you know instant impact to, to match up. And there's their strength is the kind that shows over the course of 162 games. But also when it comes to navigating through a game and matching up relievers and 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 you know improvising when either a start doesn't go well or having to change horses pretty quickly uh it seems like they're well equipped to do that so i can see that going either way but for the time being i think it's not a it's not like the yankees or indians where you look at the right-handed starters and go geez yeah i think it's uh right it's worth seeing how it plays out yeah and if you kind of follow along for the oakland athletics as far as who they've been starting it looks like this is a start for sean Manaya for game one for the Oakland Athletics, which is a great matchup for the White Sox, a left-handed pitcher, as the Chicago White Sox have been undefeated in 2020 against left-handed starters. And uh, game two would be Mike Fires, And that is an interesting matchup because I always get frustrated when the White Sox face him because I always think this guy should get lit up every time he pitches. But... It's remarkable what he's been able to do with his stuff. He's thrown two no-hitters in his career. Mm-hmm. I hope it does not go to Game 3. Because Game 3 lined up right now would be former White Sox prospect Chris Bassett. And Chris Bassett has been throwing the ball really well for the Oakland Athletics in, in September. And uh, I that's the type of right-handed starter that I think could really shut down the White Sox offense. Uh, so let's not have the White Sox face him. Unless he's coming out of the bullpen, um, but <laughs> yeah, we we got a PO Sox question from Corey asking about how he felt about the pitchers and Manaya. He's only pay, faced the White Sox once and he shut them down. Fires has shut the White Sox down. So when it comes to history, uh, it's not on their side. But this is a, a very different White Sox lineup from the last time Manaya faced the Sox. So hopefully, you know, the left-handed thing will hold. But yeah, Bassett, you know, he's got that funky kind of three-quarters delivery sliders low and away. Uh, has given the White Sox fits, seems to enjoy giving the White Sox fits, like really relishes uh, uh, facing the White Sox and driving them nuts, given that he, he takes the trade a little bit personally. Not, I don't think in an acrimonious way, given that he did have Tommy John surgery, had an uh, in-between um, 
the White Sox and him finding his form with Oakland and he also didn't really show much with the Sox, so I don't think he blames the Sox necessarily for trading him, but also he's just happy to prove that the the trade, the Samarja trade was a very dumb one, and I don't blame him for that. So it's uh it's the kind of thing where, you know, given how he's pitched against the Sox as a member of the A's and the stakes, I could see it being a very uh frustrating and and uh uh, infuriating combination to watch. So yeah, it, it could go either way. I think uh, uh, Manaya seems like the way, you know, that, that seems to be the starter they need to jump on based on their natural strengths. And hopefully you can catch either one of the other guys in their bad days or just match up pitch for pitch with Keuchel or a mixture of reliever arms. Yeah, and back that whole wanting to prove the White Sox they had made a mistake, even though he hasn't had that great of a 2020 season, I am scared of Marcus Simeon in this series uh, to recapture his 2019 top three MVP form. Uh, that would be a pain in the neck uh, for the White Sox. But ever since Matt Chapman was knocked out for the season, needing hip surgery, I mean, that's a huge blow for the Oakland Athletics. Matt Olson led the team with 14 homers, but he struck out 75 times and he hit 199 with like a 313 on base percentage. And uh, of course, his selecting was above 400. Um, a disappointed season for Matt Olson, even though he did have the home run power. It's just when you look at the Oakland offense, and again, we'll, we'll preview more, go in depth in this game one on Tuesday, uh, September 29th. Uh, at 1.30 p.m. is going to be the Sox Machine pregame show, which you'll be able to listen on SoxMachine.com and Mixler.com slash Sox Machine. Uh, I just, I feel like the White Sox should win this series, even though they're traveling on the road. And even though Oakland's the number two seed and they won the American League West, the American League West was not a strong division whatsoever. Uh, Oakland faced some pretty tough teams in the National League West, the Dodgers, the Giants, the Padres. But Houston is making the postseason with a losing record for the first time in Major League Baseball history uh, outside of the 1981 Kansas City Royals. And you just look down the rest of the division. The Angels were disappointing. Seattle's rebuilding. And Texas just had a full-on collapse. So the more I look at Oakland, as far as uh, without going in depth, looking at the general numbers, looking at what they accomplished. This opponent for the White Sox is not as scary as previewing a, a possible White Sox-Yankees first round or White Sox-Cleveland or White Sox-Twins. I f- feel like this is the best matchup for the Chicago White Sox possible in the first round, Jim. I can see that. I, I think, you know, we're just looking at the ways the series can go, it strikes me as the case where if they lose, I think they'll have lost in a frustrating fashion where just like, uh, you know, the, the a stack relievers and just never able to get good swings on a number of guys. And, you know, the close games that just don't work out in their favor, can't get the big hit, can't get the homer, but they don't look overmatched. They're able to hang in their game for game. I think if they're going against Shane Bieber and, uh, Zach Plesak or, uh, Garrett Cole and Masahiro Tanaka, just the other kind of matchups they could have had, those might have been more, um, they might have gotten out of hand. 
Yeah. Uh, whereas this one, I don't think it, it, it'll get out of hand if they lose. And I think they can, you know, maybe they can ambush Manaya. Maybe they can uh, finally figure out fires. Uh, they, they, the A's have their own history of unimpressive postseason showings to where, you know, frustration can be extended on both sides. All right. So again, we're going to have a deeper dive preview for the Sox Machine postseason pregame show on Tuesday, September 29th and Wednesday, September 30th. If there is a game three on October 1st, we will also have a pregame show as well. Those shows are going to start at 1.30 p.m. Central Time, and you'll be able to listen to the live stream show at SoxMachine.com and Mixer.com slash SoxMachine. If you have Twitter, make sure you follow us on Twitter at SoxMachine. You can follow me on Twitter at SoxMachine underscore Josh for those show updates as well. And again, we'll take a deeper dive, look at the starting pitching, look at the lineups, look at what the possible strengths are for the White White Sox, what are the possible weaknesses. Uh, so we'll, we'll have a deeper dive preview for this series later on this week for those shows. And we are very excited to be able to have those shows. And Jim and I will also have a post-game show after game one and game two. And if necessary, game three of the first round as well. Uh, so stay tuned as far as those times. And again, we'll post those times on Twitter and on SoxMachine.com. But for now, it is time for our postseason gut predictions. The bracket is out. If you go to MLB.com, they're actually having a bracket challenge for prizes. So it's just like March Madness. And I had a feeling this is the direction that Major League Baseball wants to go down. So let's go ahead and make our postseason gut predictions. So again, if you have pen and paper next to you or you got your smartphone, you can follow along with us, make your predictions as well as we go through the bracket. And Jim, we're going to start in the National League first before coming into the American League. And we're going to start from the top with the 1-8-4-5 as far as this series. The winners will be moving on to Arlington. So the first series, best of three in this first round, Dodgers versus Brewers. One seed versus eight seed. Who you got out of that matchup? Dodgers. Yeah, me too. Do you think the Brewers can win a game? No. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think they can, but just, you know, given the strength, given just the, uh, you know, the way that the Dodgers are able to set up and the Brewers are scrapping by, just I, I don't see it. This might be the final games of Ryan Braun's career. There's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rumors coming out of Milwaukee that he may retire after this season. So we'll see if that is the case. Uh, this is the last ride for Ryan Braun and the Milwaukee Brewers as they sneak into the postseason needing a lot of help and they got it in the final day. Uh, and their reward is that they get to play the Los Angeles Dodgers. All right. So in this bracket in the national league, we move over to the four five matchup. I think this is an intriguing matchup. Your four seed is the San Diego Padres, and they'll be going up against the fifth seed St. Louis Cardinals. Who do you like in a best of three in San Diego between those two teams, Jim? Padres. I do too, which sets up a very intriguing as far as second round between the Dodgers and Padres, which we'll get to that uh, series in a moment. So moving into the lower half of the bracket at Wrigley Field, you have the six seed Miami Marlins who finished 31 and 29 and second place in the National League East. And they'll be going up against the National League Central champion, Chicago Cubs. Who do you like in that series, Jim? I'm going to go with the Marlins. We are in agreement so far. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's just, uh, I'm going gut. You know, I haven't really researched these, but just feels like they're feisty. They are a feisty team, and they kind of have history on their side. They have good omens. Last time they played a playoff series at Wrigley Field. And, or any uh, playoff series. <laughs> they never <laughs> lost a playoff series. Yeah. Uh, which is <laughs> so weird to say that about the Miami Marlins. Uh, so I think for at least one more series, they will continue that. And uh, boy, uh, it'll be really interesting on Chicago Sports Radio uh, if the Chicago Cubs were knocked out by the Miami Marlins in the wild card round. I think we could see some pretty drastic changes on the north side to that roster moving to the 2021 season. All right, so we both have the Marlins moving on. Let's move to the two for seven seed, and I think that this is a very entertaining matchup. It's the number two seed, Atlanta Braves, against the number seven seed, Cincinnati Reds. Who do you like in that series? Going Cincinnati. Wow, we are 100% in agreement. I, I really want Joey Votto to be right. In what sense? Did I miss something? What did he say? Uh, I'm just looking up the exact quote that he had after the Reds clinched. Okay. Um, yeah, he said, we're an effing nightmare. They can be. Yeah, and I just, I like the confidence. I've always liked Joey Votto. I'd like to see him show up big. Uh, and yeah, the Reds, yeah, I've been rooting for them the past couple of winters just because they've been a team that has tried to win, you know, even though the window says they shouldn't try. And so I'd like to see it being rewarded. Um, they built a couple of interesting teams. They have pretty deep pitching. Uh, so I think they could, uh, they could, they could live up to Votto's uh, premonition. All right, so so far in the National League, Jim and I are 100% agreeance. we got the Dodgers, the Padres, the Marlins, and the Reds winning the first round. We're going to move over to the Divisional Series in the National League. Dodgers-Padres. To me, Jim, I feel like this is the National League Championship Series that's being played in the Divisional Series. I think that these are the two best teams in the National League. I just feel like with the Padres not really knowing if Mike Clevenger is going to be 100% for this postseason that the Padres just don't have enough pitching at this moment to overtake the Los Angeles Dodgers. So I have the Dodgers winning that series and moving into the championship series. Who do you like between Dodgers Padres? I am. I'm with you. I think the Dodgers just are deeper and I I think the Padres can uh, wreak havoc. (laughs) They just have the lineup and the instant thump and they've played the Dodgers pretty tough. But when you look at the shape of the pitching staffs and, you know, Tatis has looked, you know, mortal as of late, although he did rebound a little bit, but, you know, he slowed down a little bit. You can see the way that maybe they just run out of gas after some instant excitement and maybe it's more of a next year thing. So that's kind of how I feel about them. Okay. And then moving to Marlins versus Reds. I think this is where the Marlins postseason unbeaten streak ends uh, it, I, you, you could have some really exciting pitching matchups. Sixto Sanchez against Trevor Bauer would be a great matchup. But at the end, I think the Reds just have too much pitching and the Marlins just don't have enough firepower offensively to be able to overtake the Cincinnati Reds. So I have the Reds as the seventh seed moving on to the National League Championship Series. Who do you like between Marlins versus Reds? Yeah, I'm still with you here. Like I thought, I thought between the Marlins and Reds, I might have an upset that you didn't have, but you have... Still on that track. All right. So then I'll let you take first crack. Dodgers versus Reds. Who do you well, like to move to the World Series? Yeah, I think, you know, part of it with my predictions is I'm sticking with my preseason predictions. So I'm still sticking with uh, Dodgers here. Me too. So Jim and I are 100% agreeance on the National League. Maybe in the American League, we'll have 
different opinions on how it will shake down. So we both have the Dodgers winning the National League pennant and going back to the World Series again. And again, the World Series is going to be playing at Arlington, the new stadium of the Texas Rangers. So let's move back over to the American League in the Wild Card Series. We'll start at the top. The number one seed Tampa Bay Rays against the eight seed Toronto Blue Jays. Who do you like in that series? I like the Rays. I like the Rays too. I think the Blue Jays can make it interesting. I I think they have the potential to win one of those first two games, like twelve to four, and make Tampa sweat. So that I could see that series yeah. going three games. They either blow teams out or get blown out. Basically, they do. Yeah, there's no in between. <laughs> they they lose fourteen to one or they win fourteen to one. Just really depends on the night. All right, so we both have the Rays. I, I think. This is where we could have a different opinion here. The fourth seed Cleveland Indians hosting the number five seed New York Yankees. And this is your primetime matchup, obviously, because it's the Yankees. Uh, These games are going to be played at 7 p.m. Central time. Who do you like in this series between New York and Cleveland? I'm tilting towards the Yankees. See, I really thought you would take Cleveland because I think the Yankees are going to win this series, too. Well, I, you know, the reason I like the Indians is because, you know, or would like the Indians is because they have the starting pitching and they're playing at home and the Yankees, for whatever reason, have been weak on the road. But when I just look at the way the the starters go and just best of three and the offense and the ability for quick strikes, I think, you know, the, uh, the Indians have the top four hitters, but the Yankees are kind of similarly armed. So isn't, I don't see any unique advantages for the Indians in a three-game series. Maybe if it were like, say, you know, best of seven, I might think otherwise. But for a quick three-gamer, I'm, I'm thinking the Yankees have enough. I think this goes three games. I do see Cleveland winning game one, but I do not see them winning games two and three. That's how I see the series breaking down, is that the Yankees will win this series in three games and then move on to the next round to face the Rays. All right, in the bottom half of the bracket, we'll start with the 3-6 matchup. This is the Minnesota Twins against the Houston Astros, who again made it to the postseason with a 29 and 31 record. So, who do you like in this matchup? Astros sweep. Really? We have a difference finally. Okay. You have the Twins winning a postseason game. I do. If they don't beat the, if they don't beat this Houston Astros team, which is not a very good team, and the stars have been underachieving quite a bit. Then there is something really wrong with the Minnesota Twins. Like there's <laughs> got to be some type of curse because this is the ideal postseason matchup for the Minnesota Twins. They have the edge in every aspect of this series. So if they don't win it. That would be incredibly disappointing. Yeah, I just. I want the Twins to show me they can win a game before I buy into them. All right. So you're going with the Astros. So that's an upset. Uh, I have the Twins winning that series, which then moves us to the two-seed Oakland Athletics against the seven-seed Chicago White Sox. Who do you got, Jim? White Sox. So do I. All right. So there you go. We are being positive. We think the White Sox can win the first round and move on to the divisional series. So we'll start with the first divisional series on the top of the bracket. This, these games are going to be played in San Diego 
And it's the Tampa Bay Rays against the New York Yankees. Who do you like in that matchup? I like the Rays. I think they've matched up against uh, well against the Yankees for a reason. I think it's something that, you know, I think it's one of the unique features of the season is playing so many games against common opponents and you know, having 10 games out of 60 be against one team. You can kind of get an idea of just how depth of a team matches up against another's. And, uh, and I think the, the Rays just are able to diffuse what makes the Yankees strong. Yeah, the Tampa Bay Rays were 8-2 and two against the New York Yankees. And they really dominated the New York Yankees in 2020. So I'm, I'm with you. I've got the Rays moving on. All right, we yeah, have it. And that's the case, too, where I think, you know, home field might make a difference between, say, you know, if a game's shifting back and forth between Tampa and the Bronx and you have a lot of Yankees fans in the Tampa area that kind of neutralize maybe home field. I think maybe in a neutral site, that's one case where, you know, teams with uh, vastly different fan bases could be having uh, the same experience, which you don't often see. All right. We have a different matchup for the divisional series, but I'll start with you. You got the Houston Astros against the Chicago White Sox in the divisional series. Best of five. Who do you like in that series? Astros. Oh, so that's where you see the White Sox journey ending is at the hands of the 29 and 31 Houston Astros. Yes. Why do you like the Astros in a five game series over the White Sox? I'll explain it at the end. All right. Sounds good. For me, I have a series that will melt down White Sox Twitter and most of the White Sox fan base. The Minnesota Twins and the Chicago White Sox in a best of five American League Divisional Series. And in that series, I have the White Sox winning that series. And Hmm. the reason I have the White Sox winning that series is what transpired in Chicago. I don't think the Minnesota Twins after that series have been playing very good baseball. And they haven't been playing very good baseball in the last couple of weeks of the season. And I think that a lot of the things we discussed as far as in those four games when the White Sox clinched the postseason is that the White Sox have suddenly gotten more comfortable facing Minnesota Twins pitching. Meanwhile, outside of Byron Buxton, a lot of the Twins hitters are starting to stall. So in a five-game series, I like the White Sox pulling off the upset and coming out of the bottom half of the bracket and going to the American League Championship Series to face the Tampa Bay Rays. So in the American League Championship Series, you have Rays-Astros. Who do you like to win the American League pennant, Jim? Astros. All right. Here we go. Big surprise. That'd be something. That would just... That would be so 2020. The team that had a losing record in the regular season, winning the American League pennant and going (laughs) to the World Series. Yeah, closing into my thinking here. Got it. For me, I would have the Rays to beat the Chicago White Sox in a very frustrating championship series for the White Sox. I could see the White Sox getting swept in four games uh, against the Tampa Bay Rays and... uh, Really bring up as far as a a lot of talking points that we don't want to discuss in the sense of the Rays never spend money, so why should the White Sox? Uh, (laughs) They won the American League pennant. Um, But that was my preseason prediction anyways. At the start of the year was Tampa Bay and the Dodgers, and I know it's chalk. It's both one seeds, but I have Rays versus Dodgers in the World Series. So, Jim, you are not chalk. You have a surprising World Series matchup. You have a rematch between the Houston Astros and the Los Angeles Dodgers. It was a very entertaining World Series then. I'm 
doubtful it would be very entertaining in 2020. But I got to ask, who do you got between Houston and L.A. to win the 2020 World Series? Astros. (laughs) All right. So after they cheated and after they got busted and after they didn't have a winning record in the regular season, you still like them to win the whole damn thing. Ever since basically the pandemic happened, I've just been thinking, what's like the worst way the season could wrap up? What ends with the most people complaining? Uh, The unhappiest uh, storyline, like when it comes to just uh, fan satisfaction, when it comes to Rob Manfred, the sight of Rob Manfred handing a trophy to somebody like Rob Manfred handing a trophy to Jim Crane after everything that happened. Uh, people being happy for Dusty Baker and <laughs> people trying to say, oh, it's good for Dusty, but it's still, you know, it's, I think a lot of people want to be happy for Dusty Baker, but that's not one way they would be. So, and also the Dodgers being deprived of a, another championship or at least, you know, like uh, stalling again in the World Series at the hands of the Astros and having that flare up and just having that carry into a whole off season of just, um, complaints and controversy and, and uh, conspiracy theories. So that's what I'm fearing, and so that's what I'm going with. They're the perfect 2020 champion. They really are. Man, I don't even want to share mine, because now I'm so damn disappointed with the way that you share these for Your World Series prediction. Like, yeah, that would be... That would be heartbreaking, and that would frustrate a lot of people watching this sport, and... uh being very frustrated going to the 2021 season. And, you know, if they allow fans of the World Series, Houston is a short flight to Arlington as far as flying to Dallas. And uh, the Astros could uh, could have that uh, home field advantage for however many fans are allowed into the stadium. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, the, the way I look at it is if, you know, baseball makes sense and the Astros get bounced early, then I'll be happier no matter what. Right. They are the villains in this postseason, but you got the villains winning in 2020. Yes. All right. For me, at the beginning of the season, I picked the Tampa Bay Rays to win the World Series, but after what's transpired in the regular season, I am switching gears. I think this is the finally, finally, the Los Angeles Dodgers win a World Series, the first since 1988. And they get the job done in this postseason and they win the series over the Tampa Bay Rays, who will still be searching for their first World Series title. So we both have the Dodgers into the World Series, but Jim's got the Astros beating the Dodgers and I have the Dodgers beating the Rays in the World Series. We would love to read your guys' playoff predictions on SoxMachine.com. Go to the podcast post and post your predictions in the comments section below uh, to share who do you have winning the World Series in 2020 and uh, how far the White Sox can go in this postseason. But you also had a lot of questions for us, and we're going to try to answer all of them in a mega edition of P.O. Sox coming up next. Leslie D. won free groceries and shop, play, win Monopoly at Safeway. Don't miss your chance with only three weeks left to play. Satisfy your thirst with Coca-Cola, bubbly or sparkling ice. Take a snack break with Sargento cheese or Ritz and serve up fun with Pop-Tarts. Increase your chances to win. Shop these bonus ticket items specially tagged in store. Download the Shop, Play, Win app to play today. No purchase necessary. See rules at www.shopplaywin.com. Hasbro is not a sponsor of this promotion.
You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter. Tweet them to us at Sox Machine. Or for those that help support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash machine, you got a chance to submit your questions on our Patreon page. And this is a mega edition version of P.O. Socks. We're going to try to answer as many questions that we have received, both from our Patreon supporters and from our Twitter followers. And Jim, let's start with a... We got a lot of questions in regarding as far as this theme. From Andrew Seagull, one of our Patreon supporters, he wrote, The White Sox ended the losing streak. They broke the 12-year playoff drought. The rest of the season should be playing with house money, right? So why does the end of the year feel so unsatisfying? And another one of our Patreon supporters, Monica, she tweeted to us, Am I a bad fan for losing hope? That sentiment is going around. So how would you address it, Jim? Well, I, I think they're tied together. I, I think um, the reason why it feels unsatisfying is because there are a lot of um, likenesses or similarities to the 2016 season where the 23 and 10 was followed up by 10 and 23. And actually, they, they lost 30 games before they won 30 games, even with that giant head start. And so when you see the White Sox get off to a hot start and then you see some of the weaknesses come in, the pitching depth, the young hitters, some health issues, uh, some free agent disappointments kind of all pop up in familiar ways. It can make it seem like the White Sox were lucky that the season was only 60 games. And if they played 162 games, they might be in that same kind of, uh, you know, the the high 70s, uh, maybe 80 wins where they don't quite break either of their, you know, well, losing season streaks or their postseason streaks or, or postseason droughts. So that's, I think, why it's unsatisfying and why it seems like, you know, maybe just they're on borrowed time and maybe won't get there. Um, thing about this season, I think, is just worth keeping in mind is that uh, it's just uh, a little bit, you know, everything's different. You know, just the 60 games is different. You can't quite say that's the same, going to follow the same trajectory once the postseason starts and once the good pitchers will be being used in every important situation. And you don't have to worry about rest or you don't have to worry about uh, you know, off days and players you know, just being kind of nursed through a season. It's going to be all hands on deck. And I think it's going to bring a different kind of character to the season. I think the White Sox, with their, you know, with their, their, their rotation isn't deep, but their bullpen is. And so I think you know, with, with Crochet joining and with Bummer back and with Marshall back, there are ways to make or, or put less of a load on those uh, the, the two good starters the White Sox have. And maybe get through nine innings on a, a three-game series and uh, turn the tables on a, a team like Oakland that might not be as strong starting-wise either. Might have to patch things together as well. So uh, it's going to be a different feeling to this postseason. A longer postseason, extended more rounds, fewer games early on to you know do some damage. So I think uh, I'm treating it as a clean slate, even if there are some signs that. Uh, uh, Rick Renteria certainly should heed, you know, when it comes to like Encarnacion, like our discussion there. Uh, yeah, there are some things learned over the 60 games that he should avoid going into the postseason. But I think when it comes to just playing the good players, I think that'll give uh, the White Sox next few games different shape than their previous, say, two weeks. 
Well, Andrew and Monica, thank you so much for your questions. And again, thank you so much for your support. Our next question comes from Derek King. And Derek is asking, hopefully when you answer this, the White Sox will have looked better in the final two games against the Cubs. Kind of, Derek. Still, it's been a tough end to the season. Based on what you've seen over the last 10 days or so, how worried should we be about the playoffs? How much is fan overreaction? And what really has you concerned? Yeah, I, I think to follow up on the, the previous theme, I think, uh, you know, having seen them hit a lefty, finish the season undefeated against lefties, that makes me feel all right. <laughs> when they're, especially if they're facing a lefty in the first round, maybe in the first game, that's a good way to get started. So I think that's what makes me feel a bit better. It's not uh, Shane Bieber and Garrett Cole. It's Sean Manaya, a different kind of animal. You know, the, I think the Oakland has a better bullpen to where uh, if Manaya, you know, uh, skirt some damage and is able to minimize trouble through four, they won't really push him much further than that. So I think the damage has to be done early. But, you know, if Mankata be- can be counted upon, if Robert looks better, and if they do play the two catchers, I think that's enough. That's the kind of lineup to where if the White Sox still struggle, then it won't be on Renteria. I think maybe my biggest concern is that Renteria has looked a little bit different. Um, you know, but between the bullpen being a bit bigger of an issue, um, you know, trying to, I think, manage workloads of his good pitchers to the end while Marshall and Bummer come back. That's been a little bit sketchier. Um, the DH, you know, having playing Encarnacion to the end, that's a little bit worrisome. Uh, and then the ejections in multiple games, hopefully they don't face Angel, Angel Hernandez's crew again for the remainder of the season. But hopefully with those three things not there, or at least, you know, maybe... Uh, with every game counting, with uh, you know elimination games being very real now, that you have to have all your good players in line to help as soon as they can, that I'm hoping Renteria will be better. But I think that's maybe my biggest concern is that Renteria was wobblier. Uh, I think we both were generally supportive of him and, and maybe me more than anybody. And I would say I, I would be, you know, with all the fans criticizing him, I would just maybe give him more benefit of the doubt in saying that, you know, I don't think he's as bad as he looked the last 10 days. And maybe there were some things he was trying to manage beneath the surface. But I think if Encarnacion starts and if uh, we're seeing Jimmy Cordero again and, and you're not the good, you know, not, not Crochet, Hoyer, uh, Marshall to a lesser extent, although he looked good in his one game, bummer, same thing. And then Colome, you know, I think if he sticks to those five pitchers that, uh, it'll be hard to second guess them and it'll be more on the talent assembled and maybe just the way they were weak. But I guess that's where I'm at right now. I think what has me concerned is that, especially against Oakland, Derek, we can't count on the White Sox having that explosive seventh inning and then come from behind. I, I don't think that's something that we as White Sox fans, nor should the Chicago White Sox count on happening against a team that's got the best bullpen in Major League Baseball. And that seems to be a common strategy in which, just wait, the White Sox offense will wake up again. They'll get to the bullpen in the sixth and seventh inning. I just don't feel like that strategy is going to work in this series against Oakland. So I'm with you, Jim. The White Sox have to take care of business. They have to generate some type of offense against Oakland starting pitching where they have a lead and it's bullpen versus bullpen. And I'll feel pretty comfortable especially if it's a smaller-sized bullpen for the White Sox where it's less 
is more. Just keep it to Matt Foster, Cody Hoyer, Garrett Crochet, Aaron Bummer, and Alex Colomay, and Evan Marshall. And I think the White Sox should be fine. If there's a name that you're going to ask that I did not include, they should not be appearing whatsoever in this postseason for the Chicago White Sox. That's just how I feel right now about the White Sox postseason uh, bullpen. But Derek, as far as my concern is that sometimes this offense really counts on this offense to generate a lot of runs in the seventh inning. And I feel like the White Sox could could come up empty in those scenarios against Oakland in this series. But Derek, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from John. And speaking of Garrett Crochet, John is asking, does anyone have inside info on how Crochet was being developed in summer camp? Were the White Sox working on him as an ASAP reliever? Or was he still working on being a starter when he got called up and therefore might be stretched out enough to go four plus innings every fifth day in October? I didn't see anything specifically when it came to what he was working on in Schaumburg that pertained to role or just getting stretched out, getting up and down. What I saw was that you know a lot of like hands-on training with Everett Tiford, Matt Zaleski working on pitches, working on just delivery, I guess seeing what they had when he showed up after the draft and you know, I guess evaluating his pitches, evaluating his repeatability readiness for relief work. So I don't think, you know, based on just how little he pitched in Tennessee and uh, yeah, I guess that means his arm is fresh, but also, you know, based on just his limited experience and what the white, I guess just how little time the White Sox had to look at him, even in Schaumburg, that I would assume it's like a Chris Sale-like thing. Um, you know, when he was introduced, the White Sox bullpen after such a little ramp-up time in uh, the minors, uh, 10 innings basically between you know, Winston-Salem and Charlotte, that I just wouldn't count on him being stretched out for any meaningful amount. I think uh, it's more of an inning-by-inning proposition where, one, if it's laborious, two, if it's not, uh, and, and back-to-back days if he pitches one versus two, Um that's just basically my read on it based on just how they talked about how he was handled and the role he was brought up and, and how Rick Hahn mentioned just how they were evaluating him in, in terms of just what he can contribute to a team with hopes. I think putting him for a start would be probably be too unfair for him just in terms of, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of what if it doesn't go well? And maybe it's kind of uh, you know, not a great way to think of it. You know, you maybe you should be envisioning success in a, competitive environment, but I'm thinking when it comes to developing a player, developing just a an athlete at the highest level, I'm thinking that, you know, probably you don't want to his, his first exposure to big league pitching being a postseason loss. Like if he lost the game, if he got like, say, uh, in trouble, gave a couple homers, walked some guys, just kind of melted down after two innings, you'd think, well, he only pitched three innings in Tennessee and hadn't been really much good before then. Uh, what were you thinking? Uh, and that's mainly how I'm thinking about how the White Sox are treating him. They want to be fair to him. And I think expecting more than an inning at a time when he can ramp up his fastball, wait for um, hitters to um, call him out on his fastball and make him throw something else and not doing it, I think is probably the most effective way to balance that, being fair to him while also exploiting or, or making the uh, the best use of what his strengths are right now. I just think that, all right, my thoughts on Gary Crochet is long-term still, Jim. I think he's an Andrew Miller, Josh Hader type, and that's perfectly fine. And I think the way that he's throwing now, and based on some 
decision-making the White Sox have to make in 2021, maybe some financial gymnastics, I'm okay if the White Sox want to scrap the starting plan for Garrett Crochet and just have him be that type of elite reliever that this team is going to need for 2020 in the postseason and beyond. And Crochet's got a pretty special arm, and I'm just skeptical that he's going to be able to throw 100, 101 in his starts. I just don't think that's going to happen. Is he still effective if he throws 96, 97? I don't know. But I do know he's incredibly effective when he's throwing 101 miles per hour, Jim, out of the bullpen. Uh, So I think the White Sox, in my opinion now, putting the cart before the horse, but this is how I felt when the White Sox drafted him anyways and how I felt about Crochet watching as far as tape during his sophomore year with Tennessee when they were trying to make it into the College World Series and watching his start against Wright State in his junior year, the only appearance that he made on the college level, that I think Crochet could be an elite bullpen arm. And I think the White Sox should stick with that game plan. Do not send him back to the minors next year is what I'm saying. So you hope that he could be a starting pitcher. I think that's a bad idea. And I just want it on the record, Jim. I am against that idea months (laughs) before we have that conversation. Well, I guess I'll use that to segue to uh, Michael's question. He followed up or or didn't follow up, but it was his own question. But it is a follow-up saying, what would you do with Crochet? Should he skip the minors altogether? Or should he be a starter in the minors and work his way through? And I'm kind of with you in that uh, I would like to see them adhere to the Chris Sale plan, which, you know, Sale spent the entire year in the bullpen. I think, you know, with the way the season is shaped, with the way uh, their talent is, assuming they can get another starter, that it seems like uh, they should have a role in their bullpen for him to be that kind of weapon, whether it's Andrew Miller or... Um, Josh Hader, or whether it's just something more along the lines of a role as Chapman, you know, with Alex Colomay potentially being on the way out, you know, could they could just maybe use a left-handed closer like that. And, uh, you know, maybe a bit, you know, more than, you know, maybe stretch him out a bit more than Chapman in terms of, you know, being, you know, maybe a four-out closer, five-out, occasionally six, but maybe over the course of a full season, you just want to have him uh, be one innings if you, if you can. Uh that's kind of my thinking and maybe then revisit it after the, uh, a full season, of the minors, cause we really don't know exactly what spring training will look like. So if it is another kind of, uh, abbreviated, um, you know, say if a vaccine isn't ready yet. And so teams are still doing distancing and, and limiting interactions and limiting schedules and, and doing more of an abbreviated ramp up. Then I think it still makes sense to have things be simple for crochet. You know, I really hope there's a minor league season next year, just for minor league baseball and, all the uh, you know employees and all the players who are counting on a minor league season. I really hope that comes back because I don't know how you'd do that two years in a row. But if something is compromised with that, I think it makes sense to keep things as simple for a crochet as possible, get them through next season on a major league plan, and then revisit it after that. I, I wouldn't count another Chris Sale story happening, but um, just based on the timeline, based on how weird everything is right now, I think you just take it one year at a time with what a player can deliver uh, that that is both the most for him in terms of, you know, major league development and developing towards a major league role and also for a team that's looking to contend. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your question. And also, John, our next question comes from Mark Hope. And Mark is asking, what's the most crucial factor to the White Sox potential success in 2021 to 2025? Improvement in major league acquisitions, 
continued development of the existing roster, or regression from Cleveland and Minnesota? I would rank them uh, 2-1-3. So continued development of the existing roster, then improvement in major league acquisitions, and then regression. I think, you know, to, to go backwards, I think regression... You just can't count on that. You can't count on your division being weak. You have to build up as if you need to win 95 games or more to make the postseason. So uh, I'll, I'll table that for the time being. You know, you want them to beat them in the postseason, even if maybe they win. Nine, if, if, say if Cleveland or Minnesota wins 98 games when the White Sox win 95, I still think you feel good about that matchup in the postseason. You feel like it's a coin flip. So I, I put that at, at, at a distant third. I think with Major League Acquisitions... Uh, I think that comes down to how strong the core and even say maybe non-core players develop. Like I'm thinking, you know, the core would be, you know, Mancata, Giolito, Anderson, Roberts, um, Andrew Vaughn when he comes up, Jimenez. I, I think that's your core. I think non-core is like Madrigal. Uh, I think, uh, you know, maybe when it comes to Dunning and uh, Cease, maybe is not quite core. You know, that's a case where, you're fleshing those out. Kopech, I think, is not quite core based on just how much time he's missed. He, he's more of a question mark at this point. But if more of those guys join the core or or you, you think like, okay, they're untouchable now because of how they developed and how affordable they are. I think that takes a lot of the stress on having to find so many patches with the major league acquisitions. And you can spend more on quantity or quality rather than quantity like i'm looking at this past winter when dallas keichel has been great and yasmani grandal has been frustrating but good or more or less delivering what you think he would um if he's frustrating he's been frustrating in a way that he's been frustrating before <laughs> that team's you know maybe like his catching kind of you know he has some you know they, they, uh, it slumps sometimes with his ability to catch a ball and sometimes his walk or his patience kind of, kind of bites you sometimes when you wish he would swing the bat but i think teams uh were frustrated by that when even they won with him and ultimately they were happy to have him so i think grandall is kind of the same way but when you look at uh the undercards Encarnacion, uh steve ciszek gio gonzalez those did not pan out and i think that's a continuation of rick Hahn's very uh awful free agent history of just being able to spread himself too thin, looking for patches, looking for adequacy instead of impact. And if you're counting on him to find adequacy, I really don't like that idea. So I'd rather have the White Sox develop and continue to develop adequate players to fill those holes to where the White Sox can feel good about their internal solutions for a position. Maybe they don't have one good internal solution, but they have a couple they can audition. And then that leaves the heavy lifting for one or two key players that maybe cost 15 million or more and you feel good about their ability to contribute to the first two or three years of their contract in that way it feels like even if they aren't quite the player they think they are they're still fine like they're like you know Grandall, he's fine like todd frazier he was fine even if he wasn't as good as uh, the White Sox hoped he would have been. He still offered something. So I think that's where I'm hoping is that their development is deep enough to where they don't have to worry so much about uh, signing five free agents. They can only sign two, maybe three. I don't know how I want to answer this one. Because I think you make a good point. Like the continued development of the existing roster, if you ace that part, then there's no... 
huge needs as far as major league acquisitions or reliance on that area. Maybe you can make the case to Jerry Reinsdorf or whoever the owner is, if you're getting closer to 2025, that let's pool the money and make one huge splash free agent signing, right? That could be the the ultimate difference maker for the Chicago White Sox in those seasons. But in the short term, I, I'm going to have to go with improvement in major league acquisitions because I just don't think there is enough prospects in the AAA level to develop to be a radical difference maker for the White Sox, if that makes sense, Jim. Maybe on the pitching front, right? You got Kopech, maybe Cease, maybe Lopez, Dunning, uh, can help fill out the rest of the rotation. You don't have to spend money there. But on the bat situation... You got Andrew Vaughn, and after that, that's that. So you're going to have to spend more money on the bat situation. And let's face it, the White Sox kind of suck <laughs> at major league acquisitions when it comes to acquiring bats. They just are. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I was looking at through 2021 through 2025, and I think for that big window, I think development will be bigger than acquisitions. I can see your point, though, for trying to continue this and, and start a streak right. of postseason uh, uh, appearances to where it is more important to have a couple of hits in the uh, major league acquisitions. That's, I think, the most frustrating thing to me about the Encarnacion experience is that those at-bats just could have gone to Eurene Mercedes. Well, yeah, you know, like Even if like Mercedes were a flawed player and weren't... Uh, you know, his, his, his aggression could be exploited. Um, yeah, and just he would hit a lot of ground. Like, I think his contact would be fine. He just hit, like, a lot of ground balls or pop-ups or just wouldn't make good use of his contact. But that's what Encarnacion is doing. And you don't learn anything about Encarnacion except he's old. With your Mercedes, you know, you might learn something. And there was a lot, a lot of fans talking about, like, what if they call up Andrew Vaughn? What if they need a DH? They can call up Andrew Vaughn for the postseason. Like, my argument is, like, what about Mercedes? He's two years ahead of Vaughn in terms of major league production. He did everything you could ask from him for Birmingham and Charlotte. It's like, why not give him a shot? He seems like that's the kind of case where call it Mercedes. They stand probably an equal chance of, uh, well, I would say Mercedes maybe stands a bit better of a chance of contributing immediately over Vaughn. And even if he doesn't you learn something. And I think that's where my frustration lies with Encarnacion is just, there was nothing gained. You know, maybe there was something gained uh, in terms of intangibles and what he imparted on other hitters being in the clubhouse, but in terms of just what he offered to the lineup on a day-to-day basis, there wasn't anything there. Sure, but I did like the signing when the White Sox made it because they desperately had a home run problem, and I thought mm-hmm. Encarnacion could help there, and he did help on the home runs, but outside of the home runs that he hit, he didn't provide a lot more offensively. I, I would say it's been pretty disappointing. But I was on 670 to score this past weekend, and everybody keeps asking about Nomar Mazzara. That was a terrible decision then, and it looks worse now. When we grilled him for getting Mazzara and saying this is our right fielder when there were better choices available. I mean, holy crap, Marcella Zuna had an amazing season for the Atlanta Braves. And people would say, well, he can't play defense. I don't care, okay? Look how well he hit. He could overcome those defensive inefficiencies. And for the guy who could play some defense, Cole Calhoun, he was also a lot better than Nomar Mazzara. 
It's just that the White Sox have to get out of these traps because the Nomar Mazaras is what's, I think, anchoring this White Sox team. If there's anything that's going to stop the White Sox from meeting their potential, from bringing home another world championship to the south side of Chicago, it is their inability to ace these major league acquisitions. Because for the 2005 Chicago White Sox, Jim, it seemed like Kenny Williams got on a hot streak, that everyone that he acquired was just hitting their note and doing what they were asking to do. And there weren't huge disappointments. I, I think we're coming from that uh, Encarnacion Mazar thing from two different aspects, and I think we're both right. <laughs> I would say uh, when it comes to the ad- idea at the time, I think Mazzaro was a worse idea at the time. I, I think with the way the season has played out, like when Encarnacion was signed, he was like, well, he's on the market. He's for one year. There's not even a buyout attached to his contract. They need a right, DH. They a signing bonus. Yeah, yeah, why not? Like, cool. Go for it. Um, but when it didn't work out and he was as bad, like, you know, when I wrote about it, I said, well, he's popping up the ball a lot. He's striking out more. The walks are eroding. Like this could very much be homers and nothing else. And truly there were, there was 10 homers in a 161 or 158 average, uh, and a strikeout rate nearly 30%. Like that was it. And he still, he played 43 games. And I think that's my biggest disappointment is like in season, they didn't shift away from him. They didn't have a plan B when they had like your mean Mercedes, who was, like I said, more to learn from him failing than Encarnacion failing. Um, just, yeah, I think the, the warning signs were there a lot quicker for Encarnacion than Mazzara. But even then, you know, with the injuries and such, Mazzara had to play. They were stuck with Mazzara. They weren't stuck with Encarnacion. Yeah, the White Sox stick with these guys far past the expiration date, don't they? It's like they almost don't want to admit this is a mistake. They want to write it out with hopes that... There could be a turnaround and then they get the opportunity, the they being the White Sox front office, having the last laugh. But we've been doing this show for seven seasons. I'm waiting for them to have that last laugh. And I don't think it's going to come around for Nomar Mazzara. Sneak preview, I don't think it's worth bringing him back or tendering him a contract for the 2021 season. Uh, And in Carnacion, he's gone. The White Sox can spend that money elsewhere. So I think in 2021 and 2022, Mark, my perspective is the White Sox have to improve in major league acquisitions if they want to win a World Series in the next two years. But I think Jim is right, though. When you're looking from the, you know, the aspect of after 2022 to 2025, 2025, they have to improve their continued development of the existing roster. They have to do a better job as far as with the Major League Baseball draft and the international signings are continuing to add into the pipeline because we're going to be talking about players for the 2025 season that are not part of the Chicago White Sox farm system at all right now. And uh, they just need to be able to find that talent and uh, continue developing to add into that roster. Because when you get closer to 2025, uh, you're also approaching the end of the contracts for Mancata and Robert and Jimenez. It'll be that time to build uh, a new foundation. And who the heck knows who's owning the team and who's the general manager of the team or who's even managing the team in 2025. Um, But that's just 
my perspective, I guess, Jim, and where I differ is that I my lenses right now is really focused on 2021 and 2022, and I think they have to be better in the acquisition front. Yeah, especially with the CBA. We didn't mention that, the CBA expiring, and who knows what, that, what kind of wrench that throws in the proceeding. So it makes sense to have a narrower focus right now. I think you know that goes back with Garrett Crochet, too. Just get what you can out of him for the next year and then see what the hell the roster rules are and everything. Right, exactly. Exactly. But Mark, it's a, it's a great question and it definitely brings up a philosophical debate on, uh, on how you want your major league teams to operate. Uh, but it's an excellent question. So thank you so much, Mark, for your question. Our next question comes from Twitter from at shy underscore 34. This is from Matt C and Matt is asking Jim, given the central only schedule in 2020 and the huge reduction in advanced scouting due to the pandemic, is it an actually an advantage for the White Sox to play a new opponent like the Oakland A's in the playoffs who don't necessarily know their weaknesses? I would imagine that it more or less washes out because the A's would be the same thing where just uh, the White Sox haven't faced uh, Lizardo and they've only faced Manaya once. So, you know, they, they just don't really have a whole lot of experience. And I, I think it's to me, it strikes me it's a postseason matchup, but it could very well be just like the first time they meet in the course of a season. Like maybe they don't play in each other until July in a course of a normal season. And so they've had 60 games under their belt, and now they're just squaring off the first time in the Coliseum for a three-game set. Except this time it's the postseason, and there's no other three-game set uh, guaranteed rate field like in a month later. So it's a bit different, but it's probably kind of that, that kind of feel where... They're new. They're, it's exciting to see an opponent you haven't seen and some players you've heard about. It's just more extreme and more isolated this time since none of the other teams the White Sox have played have played those teams either. I think maybe if there's one case to where the White Sox might have an advantage, it's that maybe Luis Roberts. Like I'm thinking of the way he was pitched early on and... Uh, you remember Keith Law talking about like, oh, they're not busting him inside much. They're just you know, leaving things out over the plate, giving him pitches to hit. They're really uh, thinking that his hit tool isn't ready for pitches in the zone. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, you're just hammering pitches over and over again, out to right, out to left, hitting some uh, really impressive exit velocities. And then sure enough, they were able to bust him inside and get him away out of the zone. And he expanded his plate to like 23, 24 inches. So Maybe that's one case where Robert facing the same opponents again and again made it easier to scout him. And so maybe the A's won't be able to, uh, maybe the A's have to touch that hot stove to get burned themselves before they change their uh, scouting report. But I would guess not at this point. I would guess after 60 games and you've seen what works for Robert and you've seen what doesn't, you probably just hammer down on things that don't and make him change the way that he's hopefully changed over the last week. So that's my read, is that it strikes me as a normal first series of the season between two teams, even if it really isn't. Thank you so much for your question, Matt. Our next question comes from DJ Surmac on Twitter. This is from David. David is asking, what will be the first thing you eat when you can hopefully actually go to guaranteed rate field for a game next year? I will defer to you on this one because you have a lot more experience at Guaranteed Rate Field uh, as of late with the menu items. So what are you thinking? Hmm. Hmm. I miss elotes. I think that's the one food item that I miss because we try to make it over the summer and it was pretty good, but it's just not the same. It's just not the same at the stadium. 
And I think that would be the first thing that I would get. I'm sure I'd get some churros too at some point. I haven't had a good Maxwell Polish in a while either. So I think that would be my meal. I would get a Polish. i get some elotes because you need the veggies, Jim. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I would get the churros to, to wrap up my meal. That would be my entree, my side dish, and my dessert. Yeah, I was thinking of Polish or a hot dog, you know, you know, you know, standard Vienna beef fare, one of the two, just because I'm thinking, uh, you know, I like the Cuban comment, like my, the, I think that's the most underrated ballpark food just in terms of portability, like able to walk around while eating it and never making a mess. Big fan of that. But you can also get Cuban sandwiches at restaurants and make them at home. Like it's not too hard to replicate. I'm thinking in terms of just like walking into a concourse and what smell grabs you. I think it's the Polish <laughs> so or the hot dog. Yeah, just the, the classic just uh, uh, grill smell, grill and onions. So I think I would go towards onion based food. So I'm guessing either Italian or Polish. And then, yeah, the sixth inning churro is kind of my my tradition as well. Uh, so probably go with one of those unless it's a hot day. Then I would try to find the uh, the ice cream stand. But yeah, it, it's going to be nice to uh, to have that. Um you know, like having moved to Nashville, like in New York, upstate, they really don't have their idea of hot dogs is different. They have meat sauce, which is not quite chili. It's like it's it's almost like uh, it's not quite marinara either. It's just like meat on meat. I didn't find it very satisfying. Like it's not distinct enough like chili to where it's like two different foods in one. It's great. Just struck me as just like this ambiguous kind of pasta ish sauce that wasn't quite satisfying like it was okay i would have it but i just never sought it out but moving now to nashville a lot of chicago transplants down here uh and and being able to find italian beef and and uh vienna beef hot dogs and having it be pretty good you know like pretty close to the same just a bit more expensive i think because maybe it just costs more to get the food there um yeah but it's been nice having that kind of food back in my life on a regular basis whenever i want it so I, i i greatly appreciate it but it is nice having it at the ballpark. I think it is just the quintessential food. <laughs> I think that'll just be the uh, the sign that things are normal when you can go to a ballpark. Get especially like say if you go to a uh, you know a, a game like on a dollar Wednesday when you can have six or seven hot dogs. Uh, I don't know if I maybe I'd stop at two or three, but either way, just being able to have that at your disposal and just being able to have normal ballpark food and a normal ballpark experience. I think I'll want to simulate that first. Well, if you're only going to have one or two hot dogs, Jim, on a hot dog Wednesday, you are not going to win the From the 108 Hot Dog Challenge on the season. I'm a, I'm a terrible 108er. <laughs> I stop at two beers. I stop at two hot dogs. I'm just not good at it. <laughs> so you would not be the guy to try the nine for nine, the nine beers and nine hot dogs for all nine innings of a game. No. Yeah, it's just that sounds ridiculous. Maybe that's. No, I know who I am. Like, just it's no judgment. It's probably more judgment on me than anybody else. But just like it, just uh, like I, I get sleepy after two beers. I start yawning. Just like I don't like yawning in public. So I get it. I, I have to shift gears, but just the way my body processes it, and just I deal with it. I get it. I get it. But David, it's an excellent question, and uh, I, I'm hopeful that there are fans at games. I don't know if it's going to be immediately in 2021. I think a lot of the sports leagues are going to be paying attention to what happens with football over the winter. 
and uh, what happens as far as the state of the United States uh, recovering from uh, COVID-19 and if there's going to be a vaccine and if we can drive our numbers down to below 1% as far as uh, positive test rate. Uh, I think if we can hit those milestones, then yeah, I, I could see the country and especially Major League Baseball going back to normal uh, to start the 2021 season. But uh, if not, I, I could see where it may may only be like 10 or 20,000 fans are allowed, like up to 50% capacity are allowed to go to games. Uh, and uh, I don't know if I'll be ready to go at that stage, but I, I am eager to go back to a baseball game because I do miss the environment. And it'll be interesting to see on how it goes with the postseason, but I'm starting to get used to not having fans in in the stands, Jim. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting used to fan noise being pumped in on the broadcast and the stadiums and uh, seeing cardboard cutouts getting decapitated on home run balls <laughs> and, and foul balls. I'm starting to get used to that. And uh, I feel like that's not a good thing to get used to. Yeah, I would say I'm, I'm used to it. It's not weird anymore, but also just big moments. And I think that'll show up in the postseason too, like big moments having no crowd punctuation, I think is still a bummer. And still just something that kind of drags down the experience for me and something that baseball and sports needs. Like NBA, I've tried watching that, just having the crowd, um, you know, video screens there, not doing much for me. Uh, watched a little bit of NFL, just kind of the same thing. Just not having the crowds there, not having the signs, the face paints, the taunting, the slapping of the outfield walls, taunting outfielders. <laughs> you know, just the, you know, just the um, thing that makes home field advantage, home field advantage. Uh, makes big moment like four consecutive homers and no hitter makes those like signature moments that was all lacking to me so I think as soon as they're able to be some fans it'll help but yeah when it's restrictions are gone that'll be nice and like moving to Nashville is really looking forward to going to AAA games like good high quality of baseball full season going on a random Tuesday evening when the conditions were right and paying 10 15 bucks to get in and having a couple beers and not caring who wins i was really looking forward to that and i think that's maybe when it comes to in-person experience living where i live i think that's what i'm most looking forward to getting back to well again thank you so much for your question david and thank you to everyone that submitted questions for this mega edition of po socks we greatly appreciate all of your questions Again, if you have a question or topic that you want us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine, and you could also help support us at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And thanks to your support, we are able to do extra content like the postseason shows. So again, a programming reminder on September 29th, Tuesday at 1.30 p.m. Central Time. We'll have the pregame show for Game 1 on Wednesday, September 30th at 1.30 p.m. Central Time. We'll have the pregame show for Game 2. You'll be able to listen to that stream on SoxMachine.com and also on Mixler.com slash SoxMachine. And after Games 1 and 2, Jim and I will be streaming the postgame show to recap the action of what happened in games one and two of the White Sox wildcard series against the Oakland Athletics. 
Uh, we also have a couple other marketing news. If you just discovered the show uh, and if you just discovered Socks Machine and you do want extra content and you do want to help support us, uh, we have a couple of ways that you can do that. On our Patreon page, we have several tiers that you can choose from, uh, which you get to enjoy extra benefits like an ad-free version of the podcast and even extra content as well on the podcast. Um, but we also have the opportunity to get a Socks Machine mug, a coffee mug. And Jim, how are we doing that on that front with the inventory? We're doing all right. I'll be updating the stock on the product page this week to reflect the final stock I imagine it'll be after I send out my October shipments for Patreon supporters. I'll do a a counting of mugs and then put up the final stock for good before I save the rest for Patreon supporters. So I'd say sooner rather than later if you're looking to buy the mug without supporting. But I always advocate supporting us because that's great. Yes. For those (laughs) that support us at the $5 and $10 Patreon tier, I'm just going to give you a little tease. We are working on a new product that will be sending out a new form of Socks Machine swag that I think is pretty cool. So if you support us right now at the $5 and $10 tier on Patreon.com slash Socks Machine, I'm teasing you now, but as soon as we work out the final logistics, we'll let you know what it is and we'll be sending it out to you guys for your continued support of the 2020 season that we greatly appreciate. Another way you can support us, we have the Socks Machine shirt still. Every day, it seems like I'm sending out more shirts. So thank you guys so much for purchasing them. You go to SocksMachine.com for $25, include shipping. You get the Socks Machine shirt. If you click on the option to add some more Socks Machine swag, we got coasters, we got stickers, we got buttons that we'll throw into the mix as well uh, that you can help uh, put on your laptop or give to the kids so they can put it on their notebooks or wherever in your house. Indoctrinate them. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so again, we have that type of swag as well. Uh, and those purchases help us out a great deal. Oh, as one well. thing to mention about the live shows too, is that the live shows, unless you've changed your mind, but live shows before the game will be streamed live. They will not be on the feed afterwards because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have pregame Correct. shows on the feed, but the postgame feeds will be available afterwards. If you want to listen in the morning. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Cause the postgame show will also try to recap what happened around baseball as far as the other postseason games at the time that we're talking. So in case if you don't get an opportunity to listen to the postgame show live, you will be able to listen to that episode into the podcast feed, which you can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, including our new platforms on Radio.com and the Radio.com app. That will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. We look forward to talking to you guys on Tuesday for Game 1 of the 2020 postseason.
Is it time for a new heating and cooling system? Turn to the experts at Griffith Energy Services and Carrier today and get 0% financing for 18 months on a new heating and cooling system. Get the comfort you deserve from Griffith Energy Services and Carrier. Visit GriffithEnergyServices.com today for this and other exclusive offers. That's GriffithEnergyServices.com. License number MDHVACR01-2278. Griffith Energy Services. Doggone dependable. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.